Well, if you will, we have a few Bibles, or maybe you brought your own. Um, I think it's on page 1003. We're in Hebrews chapter 4, partway through chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 12, and we're going into verse uh, chapter 5 up to verse, to verse 10. If God were to call you into his presence right now, would you have confidence to stand before him? In our passage today, we will see that God knows the attitudes and the actions of every person. Nothing is hidden from his sight. But also, we will see that God does not treat us as we deserve, but rather he gives us a great high priest, his son, who makes it so that we can stand in God's presence, in mercy and grace with great confidence. And more than that, to walk on this earth the rest of the days of our lives with a peace and a purpose that only God can give. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Also, he was a, as a, he was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your word has come to us. We ask you and we invite you that it would pierce into our souls that you would reveal our thoughts and intentions and you would show us all the more of our need for a great high priest 
and that you would also show us how glorious and good Jesus is as our great high priest, we pray. Amen. Well, it may not surprise you that in high school, I got away with a lot of, I guess, let's call it uh, mischief and mayhem. I wasn't held accountable for much of it for two reasons. Uh, One, I was pretty sneaky. I was pretty good at being able to hide things from others. Uh, But two, I also had some very helpful go-betweens. One was Mrs. Ellis. Uh, She was the secretary for the assistant principal, Dan Natale. And Dan Natale's job was, uh, let's say, discipline. It's been said that he had my home phone number on speed dial. (laughs) It wasn't just me. I had a mischievous older brother as well. Mrs. Ellis was a sweethearted family friend. And whenever I got called to Mr. Natalie's office, she would smooth things over with him or with my mother or both. Thank God for Paula Ellis. And then there was Mrs. Killian. She was in charge of... Attendance records? I don't know if she felt sorry for me or she, it was because I was friends with her daughter, but almost weekly I found out that she marked me present, even though I had skipped a few classes. Wait, my kids are here. I did not skip any classes. I'm not saying it was right. I deserved unexcused absences, but instead I received a perfect attendance record Oh, to have someone who cares for us, to stand in for us, even when we deserve justice and punishment. Someone who works on your behalf with mercy and grace for your forgiveness. Have you had people like that in your life? Our text this morning shows us that we all need a really good representative in order to stand before God with confidence. For we've all sinned. And it's really no laughing matter. And as verse 13 states, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, God, to whom we must give an account. As we will see, we are in a quandary. None of us have lived the lives we know we should have lived, let alone the lives God has called us to live. And yet, God has provided us with an intermediary far greater than Mrs. Ellis or Mrs. Killian, He gives us a representative, his son, sent from heaven, who is called the great high priest, who intercedes for us and provides for us the mercy and the grace we desperately need and the confidence to stand in God's presence. And because this is true for us this morning, here's our main idea. We must draw near to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, because he alone is able to save us eternally. That is what verse 9 says. He, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What's this all about? This morning we're going to divide our time under three headings. We're going to look at the quandary, the qualifications, and the quality. First, the quandary. Now, for the youngsters here, a quandary is a dilemma in which you find yourself in difficult circumstance where you're unclear as to how to get out. The quandary all humanity is in is that each of us will one day have to stand before our creator 
and give an account of everything. This passage tells us that God himself looks deep inside us and he sees all things. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. These verses tell us that God's word, his scriptures, and God himself, through his word, is able to penetrate deep inside the hidden realms of our spiritual nature. Just as God is alive and active, so too his word, our holy scriptures, uh, is alive and active. And by this word, he searches us out and lays us bare before him in ways we could never do on our own apart from him. Now imagine there was a video recording of your entire life. Certainly there'd be things you'd be proud of as you watch the movie with some friends. You would maybe point at something and pat your friend on the back and say, you remember that? But if you're the least bit able to be honest concerning yourself, you have to admit that your life movie would be full of shameful clips, would it not? The things you thought about others, things you did or didn't do. The quandary is, the, is this. We go through life fudging our own records, and we, we hide our sins from others. And when they arise in public view, we shift blame or we make excuses. Do you see this in your own life? Is this not a tendency that we all share? The quandary is, though, we can hide from others and we can even hide from ourselves, but we cannot hide from God. That's what this passage is saying. Now, our natural state is to ignore this, to act as if God's existence is a myth and the fact that he will judge us is a lie. But consider this. Does not the creator have a right to judge his creation? Now, Add to the fact that we think God's existence is a myth and his judgment's a lie. If we do agree that God exists and that it's right for him to judge, then we like to think for some reason we're off the hook. It's the other people, right? They're the ones, they're the sinners, it's their fault, not me. Like Voltaire famously stated, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. And so we can live virtually every waking moment as if no one has access to the deepest recesses of our being. And if you're a Christian, you know this is true for yourself as well, isn't it? You know that God sees all, and yet our lives can become elaborate webs of denial and candy coating. So much so we can even come to believe our own spin. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, I know what I'm saying can be a little bit hard to swallow. It sounds so gloomy and doomy. It is, but then again, it isn't. How so? Well, listen and receive this with great joy. The same word of God that cuts deep inside the hidden places of your soul for judgment can also cut deep inside your soul for salvation and transformation. 
What do I mean? Well, look what the writer says about the word of God, about how it pierces and divides between soul and spirit, as if it's piercing between joint and marrow in your body. Now, some people think that this means then that, that humans have three parts. We have a body and a soul and a spirit, but that, that's not what this is saying. Joints and marrow are both physical components of your physical nature, your body. In a similar way, your soul and spirit are spiritual components hidden inside your spiritual nature. You have a body and you have a, which is physical and you have a spiritual nature. And so your soul and spirit aren't two entirely different things. They, they, they both are your inner you, right? The soul perhaps is more related to your inner desires, your spirit more of the outward manifestations, right? But really think about it. Can you distinguish between the two? No. <laughs> but God through his word can and does. In other words, God, through his active and penetrating word, is able to get inside the spiritual places of your soul that you, on your own, are incapable of accessing. God knows you better than you do, and who better to search you out? And so this is part of our quandary. Unless, unless, the, word, listen, unless the word of God cuts into us spiritually, think about it. We will not even think there is a quandary, right? Because it's the word of God that reveals this great need of our souls. And then, let alone, will we not even begin to turn to Christ for salvation? So think about it. It's a gracious reality that God's word has come to us so that it may pierce inside our spiritual nature and peel away the layers that, that we don't even perceive. And when we've come under the word of God and allow God to actually work to, to penetrate deep into our souls, it does two things. One, listen, it genuinely humbles us. So we stop making excuses and pointing fingers at others. Instead, we own our own sin and we come to agree with God's words that he has a right to judge us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And listen, it's only after the word of God has penetrated our souls in this way, that we can be ready for what else the word of God does. See, the word of God humbles us, but then it points us, it lifts our head, it points us to Christ with great joy. We come to delight in Jesus as our great high priest. And my friends, this penetrating work of the word of God, it isn't just for that day when you come to put your trust in Christ is your high priest. It's for every day of our lives. Why? Well, one, it's because God's word is how he matures us in Christ over time. Many of us are part of our grace group, our discipleship groups. And each week we, we hold each other accountable to having spent time in scripture, coming under God's word, allowing it to penetrate us. We hold each other accountable for, for, for growing in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And also, the, the Word of God is for every day of our lives because it is the reality that every day, right, we continue to sin. And His Word helps us to expose our transgressions, but also, thankfully, His Word points us back to Christ, our High Priest. So, 
the proper effect of having the word of God do surgery upon us is that it causes us to cry out to our great high priest who alone can intercede for us. Now, what are the qualifications, though, of this great high priest? You know, every election cycle, and I guess this is another election year, we got a few more months before the ads start rolling in, right? Um, every election cycle, we're presented with candidates to choose from. And how do we go about deciding? Well, one thing we consider is a person's qualifications for office. Now, isn't it true that someone's qualification is another person's disqualification? Like, some, if a candidate was a small, uh, successful small business owner, some people are like, yes, that makes him qualified. Well, others just say, heck no, we don't want a businessman. Our passage helps us to understand that no matter who you are, Jesus has the qualifications for being your great high priest. First, we see that Jesus has the proper appointment. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest acts on behalf of men or women in relation to God. So it's necessary that the high priest be human, right? And one who is chosen to act on behalf of us in relation to God. And what we see here is that God the Father chose his Son to be our divine human priest. Now, in our passage, the writer mentions two other priests. Why? Uh, one's named Aaron and the other Melchizedek. Um, well, it all has to do with Jesus' qualifications to be our great high priest. See, the problem to the readers of this letter who were Jewish is, is that, that they knew Jesus was a descendant of King David but not a descendant of the first priest, Aaron. See, only descendants of Aaron were qualified, or so they thought, to be priests. So then how in the world could Jesus, who is born from the kingly line, be a priest? Well, the writer says, before there was Aaron, there was Melchizedek. We're going to read a little bit more about Melchizedek in chapter 7, so not a whole lot of deep dive here, but... After Abraham rescued Lot by force, he returned to the land outside of Sodom and was met by Melchizedek. Genesis 14 tells us that Melchizedek was both the king of Salem as well as priest of God Most High, both offices. And he led a worship service for Abraham after his victory. And interestingly, we read that Melchizedek took bread and wine and blessed Abraham. So to address the concerns of the reader that Jesus was not qualified to be priest because he wasn't a descendant of Aaron, the writer reminds them that there's, that, that there's another priestly order that God has, the order of Melchizedek. And so in verse 6 of our passage, the writer quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4, where the psalmist says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer is saying to us, you remember God's promise in Psalm 110 where he spoke of this forever priest uh, from, from the order of Melchizedek way back when? Well, guess what? That forever priest is Jesus. 
All that to show that Jesus was qualified to be priest because of his appointment. Now the second reason Jesus was qualified to be God's great high priest is that he has the right disposition. Think about it. It's very rare for a human being to be both strong and empathetic. Usually you're more one than the other, right? I, I'm more strong than empathetic, right? I, some of you are like nodding your head. Yeah, that's Mark Middlecoff, all right. I'm not making excuses, right? Uh, but Jesus, my friends, is both. He's both. Verse 2 and 3 show us that, that, that this is an important quality of a high priest. It says the priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. <laughs> Remember, ignorant isn't like you're stupid. It just means you don't know something, right? Like you don't know something about God's word. But the wayward, those are the people who know what not to do, and they do it anyway, right? He's able to deal gently um, as the high priest. See, a good high priest, though possessing power, is gentle with those he represents. Now, if you know the history of Old Testament Israel, most of the high priests weren't like that, right? Which is why I say a good high priest. How is it that a good high priest is able to deal gently with the wayward? Well, look what verse 2 says. He says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. A good high priest is humbled by his own sin. The word of God, which is living and active, has pierced into the division of his soul and spirit. He knows himself to be a wayward sinner, just like those he serves. He is in need of God's mercy and grace. And he knows it's only by God's grace that he even has this calling to be a high priest. That is why verse 3 says that the high priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins first, just as he does for the people. More on that in weeks ahead. But the high priest first had to make a sacrifice for his own sin so that he could be cleansed and then serve as God's high priest for the people in God's presence. Only then could he have confidence to enter into that throne room in the tabernacle. So a good high priest would be able to sympathize with the weaknesses of God's people. My friends, here's the good news that we need to soak in today. Jesus wasn't just a good high priest. He is the great high priest, par excellence, who sympathizes with us. We see this mentioned in verse 15 of chapter 4, and it's explained in chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. First, verse 15. Here we read, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, perhaps some of you here in the room are saying, how in the world could Jesus be tempted like we are? He was divine. He didn't have a sin nature. He never sinned. It had to be easy for him. He's God's son after all. Let me take a few minutes to demonstrate how wrong we are. In fact, I'd like to suggest that the temptations that Jesus, is, Jesus faced were far more insidious than anything you and I succumb to 
on an almost daily basis. So just how was it that Jesus was tempted? Many ways, but I just want to go through one. First, we must acknowledge that Jesus did not have a sin nature. Jesus wasn't born with original sin like us. He couldn't help but sin like we do. But he was tempted. Do you remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he's led out into the wilderness, and he's, and he's without food for 40 days, really hungry. Ever gone without food for 40 days? Like, you know, I can barely make it to lunch without breakfast. Satan tempted Jesus, saying, take these stones and turn them into bread. Now, there's nothing wrong. It's not a sin to take a stone and turn it into bread. But he would be dishonoring his heavenly father. Add to that, Jesus lived by this principle. He would never use his power for personal interest. Think about it. What if every time Jesus was lacking something, he just produced a miracle to meet his need? When he's tired, he'd just snap his fingers and a nice cold Red Bull would land in his hand. Or if instead of having to walk for days to get to some other place he was going to, he could just teleport himself, right? And if Jesus lived that way, wouldn't your accusation of him be, but you really don't know what it's like to suffer like we normal humans, Jesus? Consider this. Imagine the restraint that Jesus must have had to exercise with these normal temptations. Every human pain and sorrow or hunger or thirst or heartbreak could be fixed with the snap of his finger. And you think your temptations are tough. My friends, when Scripture says that Jesus has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, it should cause us to fall on bended knee and praise him. Now, do you know where Jesus experienced his greatest temptation? It's, re it's referenced here in our passage. It was also the very same time he was meeting your greatest need as your great high priest. It was when Jesus hung upon the cross. Upon the cross, Jesus experienced the pinnacle of temptation. Verse 7 says that Jesus knew that his father was able to save him if he would be but cry out to be rescued. And truth is, on the cross, Jesus could have called upon 10,000 angels to come and just take him away back to heaven. Think about it. You and I would have, like, tapped out as soon as we saw that hammer and those nine-inch nails. I'm out. Again, verse 7 says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This he did on the cross. But he did not cry out for himself. No, he cried out for you and for me. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ignorant and wayward. Even in his time of greatest temptation, he proved himself gentle to the ignorant and the wayward. 
Jesus hung on the cross naked and exposed before God and humanity. And the sin that separates us from God, he bore in his body. See, Jesus isn't just our, the great high priest. He is also God's perfect spotless lamb who dies for our sins. Verse 9 tells us the outcome of his priestly sacrifice. And being made perfect, I'm sorry, I just don't have time to go through that whole thing. Being made perfect, he came, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Remember, obeying is really trusting in Christ. It's hearing the gospel and believing. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. My friends, Jesus has the perfect qualifications to be your great high priest. He has the proper appointment. He was chosen by the Father to be our great high priest. He's both strong and empathetic. He took our sins upon himself, if we would but believe. And therefore, he's able to be our source of eternal salvation. All right, so we looked at the quandary and the qualifications. Now for the quality of Jesus' priestly service. In verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, it tells us of the quality of Jesus' priesthood. It tells us that we have such a great high priest that we should hold fast to him that we should cling to him. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive what? Mercy. And find what? Grace to help in our time of need. Remember the context of this letter, right? The, these congregations, uh, some within these congregations were, were wanting to, to go back to how things were under Moses. Follow the laws of Moses. Be religious. Do the right things. Check off the boxes. Hold salvation in your own hands. The writer is showing them and us how dumb this really is in light of the fact that Jesus is God's great high priest. How in the world, after experiencing the grace of God, could you ever go back to living under the law? And yet we Christians do the same thing today. <laughs> it's pervasive. I have to fight it too. After being saved, not by works, but by faith, we can live each day not by faith, but by works, right? Do all the little good things that Christians do so you can feel good about yourself. Oh, did they tell you pride's a sin? <laughs> the confession, though, that, that the writer says we're to hold fast to is that we're saved by grace through faith, and therefore we live each day by grace through faith. And this is all because God is what? Our Heavenly Father. Parents, do you stop loving your kids when they misbehave? No, you love your kids no matter what they do. And you do not want your kids to relate to you each day by their good works. Rather, you want them to relate to you by the grace you have for them 
So too with God. You understand that? The original readers of this letter needed to hear this, and I think we do too. See, isn't it true we can often avoid coming to God? We can go days or weeks without intimate communion with God because we're avoiding him. Because we either think we're good enough or we think we could never be good enough. <laughs> that is something that they're performing well and they don't therefore need to draw near to Christ as their great high priest for mercy and grace. My friends, when we live this way, we couldn't be any further from the truth, which is why the word of God is able to penetrate our souls so that we may be refreshed in our understanding of just how fallen and needful of Christ we are. We are utterly dependent upon Christ. But others feel unworthy. Perhaps that's you today. They see the ongoing sin in their lives and they cannot for the life of them think that, that God is ready to receive them again. Same old thing over and over. So many Christians avoid coming to the throne of Christ to prayerfully lay their burdens upon him because they don't feel worthy. But the whole point of this passage that it's trying to drive home is what? That we must have confidence to draw near to Jesus because his throne is a throne of grace. Right? It's not described as a throne of judgment, nor as a throne of rewards for the select few who got it right. No, it is a throne of grace. It is there and there alone that you receive what your soul longs for. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you ever feel unworthy to draw near to God, you are. And so you're not to have confidence in yourself. No, you have confidence in your great high priest who has been tempted in every way like you, but without sin. And who is also very, very sympathetic towards you, if you would just admit it. And his throne is a throne of grace. And he's not surprised if you keep coming back to it again and again. And he will not ignore you. My friends, verse 16. So let us then, with confidence, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace. There it is. I found it. Where? At the Jesus' throne. Are you able to see the immeasurable quality of Jesus as your great high priest? Christian, the more you understand and delight in the fact that Jesus sits on a throne of grace and sympathizes with you, that is, he's eager. He's eager for you to draw near to him in confidence. Christian, the more you understand and delight in this, the more your life is lived with great freedom and with power and with great purpose. 
No more prideful self-sufficiency. No more pitiful self-loathing. You are to live with confidence, to come before the throne, not because you've significantly improved yourself, but only because the great high priest is on the throne and his throne is one of mercy and grace. So our confidence comes not from what we have done as Christians, but from who Christ is and what he has done and continues to do for us as our great high priest. So, we've been challenged this morning by the word of God. Hopefully it's pierced deeper inside us and split away things that normally we don't have access to. We're able to discern. But hopefully it's also pointed us to Christ, our great high priest. And so if you come to trust in Christ as your great high priest, then, then that film of your life, that movie, that will one day leave you naked and exposed before God's throne of justice, that, that film is being held in Jesus' hands. And all that guilt and shame and sin that is on it has been wiped clean. How so? Because Jesus was naked and exposed on your account. And he took your sin upon himself, and he died on a cross for you. And so living today means we live with confidence in Christ, our great high priest. Grace Church, may we do this throughout the rest of our days together. May we together as his church and with confidence draw near to his throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, oh, how our souls leap for joy at this word. We're so thankful that, that your word really does penetrate deep into places that, that, that we have no access to were it not for you and your mercy and grace by your spirit. We're thankful for our great high priest, Jesus, we long to draw near to you, to receive mercy and grace. We're thankful that you know what it's like to walk on this earth, the struggles, the hardships, the despair. Um, we delight that you are our great high priest, and we draw near to you now. In your name we pray, amen.